The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of Cleveland State University, and my participation in this podcast is separate from my roles there as associate lecturer and director of the school psychology program. Further, this podcast is for educational use only and should not be considered professional advice. Welcome back, listeners, to the Handsful Parenting Podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Handsful Parenting Podcast. This is episode number 16. I'm here, as always, with my South American counterpart, Axel Balsadanzi. Gases, Che. Gases, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long time. I Jeez, maybe four weeks between World Cups and illnesses and work being crazy. So we're back. Yeah. Yes, we are back here. Great so, to be here. Yes. So, Axel, uh, we're back to um, our edition this week of What's Up With That. And I mm-hmm. want you to tell us why grilling and eating meat is such a big thing in Argentina. So, like, when I first visited, I was more or less vegetarian. And I remember searching all over the city. and I found, like, the one health food store that sold tofu and a bunch of other like bars that had been like stuck together with honey by seeds, like Hobbit food. And I remember that I cooked uh, some of that tofu up for my host father, Guillermo. And when he tried Mm -hmm. it, he like turned away from me and spit it um, up into his hand. And, you know, his wife, Argelia had to (laughs) grab it away from him because she was so embarrassed. So anyway, by the end of that trip, though, I'd, I'd become a carnivore. There are Parijas or Argentinian barbecue restaurants on every street corner down there. And the smell is just mouthwatering. I, I feel like I smell it, you know, when I get off the plane. Uh, so grilled meat is just ubiquitous and uh, it's hard to not eat it down there. So where, where did this culture of eating so much meat come from? Well, it, it has a, a historical reasons. And the thing is that when the Spanish... Spaniards came first to to these uh, latitudes. <coughs> they many times founded towns that that didn't last, but th- they brought with them some cattle, right? And both in 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 Uruguay and in Argentina and all the pampas turned out to be the best uh, place for cows to reproduce and 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 breathe and and breed right uh so so they the numbers just went up exponentially and there was not not a, enough of a population to hunt them down the aborigines didn't care much about them they didn't have a natural uh predator so there were very in 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 a short span of years there were many cows around here so the business that first uh are, uh, brought people to these latitudes in the 1700s, let's say, was uh, usually a, a Spanish uh, would get some sort of a permit to come here and do some rodeo, like with the buffaloes in, in the earth, right? And uh, hunt a bunch of cows. But the prize, the valuable thing was not the meat, but the hides. Mm. That was that what could be exported to Europe. There was no way of exporting the meat. So for a long time, the life of the gaucho was to kill a bunch of cows, eat as much as as meat as it could eat because it was free, <laughs> and then carry along to the looking for the next bunch of wild cows and kill them and round up the meat to rot over there. That's why the population became so um, accustomed to eating meat because it was free. It was not until the late nine, the beginnings of the nineteen hundreds or, or late eighteen hundreds when the the refrigerated. Uh, ships came along were invented and then the the meat was able to be uh, could be exported along with the hides and even then only certain uh, cuts of meat were were then exported one that was not exported was the asada which is the little part of meat that is left between the ribs of the cow and that was disposed of. And so people would just go and pick it up because it was free food. <laughs> so the asado, which is this this special way of cutting the meat that you can't find in the States, which is just a bone, a little piece of meat, bone, a little piece of meat, is the most popular thing. The thing is that, you know, the, the meat closer to the bone is usually very tender. That's why 
uh, the, the the thing stuck. So, well, nowadays meat is not cheap anymore. Everything is exported, and the government has to put quotas so they leave some meat for the Argentinians or the Uruguayans. But for many years, it was a cheap thing to eat, and that's why we became a very carnivore society. Gotcha. Yeah, the the carnicerias are all over the place. There, I, I remember, and I'd go into those places because I would I eat a lot of meat and cook a lot of meat myself. I was not very good at it, but I tried. And I uh, just re- remember the, the crazy amounts of meat being carried in, like they, they would carry like the, the cattle, you know, that had been whatever skinned and were just meat and bones on their backs as they would walk yeah, into yeah. those places. Um, <laughs> yes. It was, it was wild. So uh, anyway, I appreciate that. Maybe in another episode, we can go into specifics about what the actual uh, grilling of meat looks like and just some of the different yeah. cuts and whatnot. Um but uh, today, I think we should move on because we don't have too much time w- to uh, talk about our main subject. So during this week's episode, we're going to discuss a topic that I know parents here, and I'm one of them, are curious about, which is the Montessori method. So I think mm-hmm. Montessori here is seen as like the Tesla of education, right? Like what you should provide for your child if you have the means. And like an electric car, it will be a different experience than the one you're accustomed to. And it's not for everyone, maybe. So many here are paying hefty private school tuition for Montessori, but still don't understand what their kids are doing there. And sometimes they're too afraid to ask. Uh, So since we have an expert on the subject, uh, someone who is Montessori certified, trained, and who runs a Montessori school, uh, I thought it would be useful for you, Axel, to explain the Montessori method. So let's start by just talking about the, the history. So like, who was Maria Montessori and, and why did she create this form of education? Well, Maria Montessori was a, a very special, unique woman born in 1870, the 31st of August of 1870, in a small town in Italy. And since a very young age, she showed that she she was different. She was special than any from any other women in, in the time or from many women at the time. She wanted to study. She wanted to become an engineer which was very odd for an Italian woman in the 1870s. And um, her father opposed, but she was very persistent and she got him to send her to a, to a school only for boys in, in technical matter, high school, let's say. Uh, and uh, she was, her and another girl were the only girls in, in school and they had, she had, they had to be locked up on breaks because uh, they were afraid the boys would, you know, be improper to them. And uh, with that same spirit, she went on and and tried to enter into medicine school. She was denied because of being a woman first. So she went into biological school. And then uh, eventually, after being already a student and a, a very, very famous and, 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 and uh, famous for her good grades and, and and good speeches and presentations, she was granted access to to study medicine, where she was one of the first women doctors uh, in Europe and in Italy. Some people say she was the first, but she wasn't the first. But maybe she was fourth or fifth. I mean, it still was very hard. She had to take anatomy lessons in a different time because it was frowned upon that she would be in the same room with other men watching at a naked body and so on. So a very special person. Anyways, after uh, uh, studying medicine, she decided she was going to go into psychiatry. And being a woman, she was uh, usually um, put in charge of children. And that's when she saw the the disastrous situation of children in 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 psychiatric hospitals in Italy at the time, they were like just put in cages, and literally people would just a, a, a Sunday night, a Sunday evening uh, stroll for a wealthy family in Italy in that time would be just to go by and see the crazy people locked behind bars and throw them food and, and fruit, like going to the zoo in the old times. Things we don't even do with zoos anymore, and and she was heartbroken and heartbroken and so she said she decided she had to do something about it and change it so she started studying children and by doing so she started to be amazed by the inner strength of children uh, and the, the the drive to learn and to figure out reality she like fell in love with childhood at that time and uh, so first she started by by trying to 
improve the conditions of these children in psychiatric psychiatric hospitals. And part of that was realizing that these children needed some some stimuli, some some sort of training or teaching that it, it could be adapted. And she did. So she started getting very good results with children, and and she adapted some of the methods from other uh, people that had worked with children, like Seguin, the the famous French uh, psychiatrist. And uh, the results were so good that she started wondering if she could apply some of these methods with regular children. And so she was given a a sort of a school, but it wasn't just two rooms, in a, in a neighborhood that was very difficult, uh, very poor neighborhood called San Lorenzo in Italy. And there was this, this society of charity that they wanted to do something for the poor people. And so they 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 just gave it, told her, okay, you have these two rooms, just take care of the children because children wouldn't go to school until they were seven. So we have a bunch of children from ages four or three to six or seven who are just roaming around all day long, parents working 16 hour shifts. And they are you know, just causing a lot of damage. So here you have them, do whatever you want. They didn't care. And she was thrilled about it because she didn't have to work with teachers whom she considered they they were biased. And and so she she was herself and the daughter of the doorman of the whole complex. And uh, and, uh, so she started putting things into practice with so great results that this, we are now 1890s uh, when the first Casa de Bambini on the house of children she opened uh, there was it was a time where kindergarten was not around uh, and it was so successful that attracted a lot of attention and some people say hey why don't you do this with uh, all kids all types of kids not only with the kids of this uh, uh, sort of poor neighborhood and uh and she did and she got great results and so she's her fame started to grow all across europe there was a, a turning point when, when there was a world exhibition in Panama in the 1903, 1905, I don't somewhere on there, where she, she she put a classroom with glass so people would go in and see the children working. And everybody was marveled about, about how concentrated and engaged children were. And well, from then on, she she dedicated herself to perfect to to yeah, to make improve her method for all levels, not only for for three to six. To kindergarten level, but also for primary level, and she even got to theorize about high school level. She didn't Im- implement it, but but she did open and 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 uh, run uh, and, and train a lot of teachers and schools on on the Montessori method until her death in in around 1950 in in Holland. Gotcha. Well, so that's basically the, the the history of of Maria Montessori. Excellent. No, that that was great rundown. So let's talk now about what the foundational principles are of Montessori education um, and and how does that play out in the activities that kids are doing on a daily basis. So we'll start with foundational principles. Well, the first the first thing she she we, we gotta take the, the 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 historical moment into consideration because uh, this will probably be useful when we talk about the method today and what are the challenges today. But we are talking about a time when childhood is something that is not considered as important by society in general. I mean, the 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 rates of, of child mortality are very high still, and the, the 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 custom is that parents do not get very attached to children until they they've seen they have survived, right? And uh, so they are seen like think, uh, seen as little potential human beings, but not much more than that. Now she looks at children and she says, "We are treating them like don't disturb, don't touch, don't do anything, and we are missing out on something important that these children are the future of humanity." And so she was horrified by wars and, and uh, World War. Uh, uh, and a famine and everything. She said, how do we train, how do we create a man for the future that essentially strives to bring a peace into the world? How do we do that? We need to, to, to we're doing something wrong because I don't see that amount of aggression and, and selfishness in, in little children. 
Something must happen in between that we turn them into what we are as adults. So, and, so, uh, so just yeah. if I could just interject, so like she was one of the first people, it sounds like, to really be thinking education-wise to what do we want these people to become, not I'm going to keep them quiet and keep them busy um, and uh, keep them in control or under control, as opposed to that, she's thinking more about who do I want them to become, and based on that, how do I want them to behave, which is a lot different. You know, those two things are different. Yes, definitely. Of course, this is a time when these things are happening all around the world, right? This is a new school era, and it happens in in, in the U.S. with um, the well, the Dalton Plan, and and uh, it happens with with also the founder of the traditional kindergarten. Um, I just missed his name. This a German author. Um, well, I can't remember, but it is a time. This, she's not the only one. I'm not saying she's the only one, but she's very early on. And, and she's in Italy and Europe. She's a leading voice on this saying we need to take care of children in a better way. So we have a better future for humanity. Yes. And she says, what do we need to take care of? Well, first of all, we need to, to, to create independent thinkers. Because she is seeing the rise of fascism in Europe. Actually, she was later banned by the Mussolini regime and, and she had to be exiled in India for many years because she would refuse to, to be the ambassador of the Mussolini regime. And so she said, we need children to be, first, we need to respect a child's drive to learn and nurture it. And that, that's the key. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to provide the kid with enough autonomy so he can have a room and space and opportunity to develop his own inner being and his own intelligence by himself. So this is one of the things that is now a days part of the speech of many uh, revolutionary educational programs. But she not only she, she walked the talk. Is that how you say, right? <laughs> she worked with her. She devised a method in which this autonomy would be uh, nurtured from very, very early age. Right. This is one of the things we want: independent human beings, and we want, and if we want them, we need them to be autonomous and to be driven by their own need for learning. And uh, so, this is one of the things that are are, are essential. Um, I would say this is the thing that is essential. Also, she said the development of the mind should not be neglected, even if we want to do some sort of a education that protects children. That doesn't mean we're not going to teach them content. This is one of the big difference with other uh, methods that maybe went for respecting the child, but not providing an intellectual education. For her, that was key of being an autonomous and independent uh adult to have a very well-developed mind and that this mind would be connected with the body in a very healthy way. So for example, in a very early age, she also connected with a lot of issues of self-care. Again, these are things that are common now, but in the time they weren't, and they are not as common as we are beginning to lose them in regarding to children. So she would say that children would love to work and would love to dress them by themselves and and cook meals and and clean their uh, their their own bedrooms and wash their own clothes and so she was a, a strong advocate of that and with new tendencies or nowadays parents sometimes consider that those uh chores are not uh suitable for little children but she was very much for it so basically, these are the things: autonomy uh, to take care of the of the desire for learning, and uh, thinking of an education about uh, for a peaceful world. Gotcha. Um, so you also mentioned um, respect for the child and hmm. uh, the mind body connection. You know, too. Would you say that those are also foundational principles? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, all right. So that's good to know. So we have these foundational principles. Um, how does that look? How does that play out in the activities that kids engage in um, in a Montessori classroom on a daily basis? Like, can you describe um, how that how that works? How do you put it all together? Yes, there are, there are a couple of things that uh, well, not a couple. There are a number of things about the organization of a Montessori school that 
are very simple actually, but go deep into this and are, are very difficult to to respect or to enforce when you are a trained teacher on the traditional methods. Um, for example, one of the things, uh, and, and let me let me say something briefly. One of the reasons why many educational reforms do not work is because they do not change what two authors, uh, Tiak and Cuban, call the, the grammar of education, uh, which means the grammar rules of education. So we, we may want to do a lot of changes, but we keep putting all kids of the same age in one room, right? And you may change many things, but that's that that defines the the everyday life of chi of children for 12 years being in a room with the people of their same age and she said that's not natural so the first thing she did was we're going to work with classrooms where children are mixed with ages at least 3 years like 3 5 and 6 years old or 6 7 8 uh, 7 8 9 years old and 9 10 11 years old sort of <laughs> 3 years so we have in a, in the same room children with different chronological ages but sometimes they are on the same intellectual level or in in certain subjects right so one of the big big things is if you have a child he will be in a classroom with children of different ages not too too much of a difference but yes at least 3 years uh, span so this is number one. Number two, what a child does is not governed entirely by the teacher. He has a, a very wide room to maneuver to decide what to do from a very early age. So a, a child that comes into a Montessori school can choose what to do from a limited repertoire always. This is not like he can go outside and play ball or all day long being uh, on top of a tree. That is uh, like the, the Summer Hill model. And, and uh, it's very interesting to see, but I, I haven't seen it worked as much as I, I would have liked to, to implement it. I think it might work some cases, but I don't think it's uh, as efficient as this method in which children are told, okay, these are a number of activities you can do. When they are little children, the freedom to do one activity for the whole week is, is complete. And as they start growing, we tell them, okay, so this is a list of things you can do. You got to do at least one of these or 15 minutes of each, each day, let's say. You, you cannot spend a whole week without doing anything of math. But if you prefer to spend all Monday doing all your math assignments and then be free, you can do it. If you can want to do, if you want to do one hour a day, you can do it. I mean, you can manage your time um, and and how much you, you do. And the other thing, well, so that's number two. A child goes into a class and he chooses from a menu of options what to do today. And he has a teacher that is supervising, talks with him, says, oh, you're doing this, notices, keeps a record and makes suggestions. Hey, I've seen you haven't touched this material. Maybe you should, depending on the age, of course. The, 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 the younger the child, the less the teacher uh, guides or interferes with his choice. But as they grow old, they do. So you have another important thing. The third thing is that there are no or almost no group lessons. There are some. There are actually five <laughs> that are traditionally taught there are five cosmic lessons that are taught to all children is the only moment uh, one of the few moments in which the teacher is the center of the class but then the teacher just goes around teaching small lessons to small groups of children just to let them uh, advance on their studies according to what they are doing so this is another very difficult uh, thing for a teacher is that you gotta be providing small tasks like in a workshop environment to different children of different ages and different levels. So basically you need to plan for each children, for each child individually. And this is a, a, a very big change. There's no lesson of the day. There are many lessons of the day. Right? And each lesson is, is given with, a, with a, a number of tasks that students can do from that lesson. So a teacher goes around and teaches three children about doing addition, let's say, they're five years old, 
with a certain material, but then other children have already mastered addition and, and he goes and tells them how to do subtraction and another group are doing multiplication and another is going division, right? And in the same room at the same time, some children are doing different things. The other very, very, very important thing is that each child can take as long as it needs to finish each task. And this is of the essence because a child is shown, two, three children are shown how to uh, do an addition with a specific material that, that we have for that. Now, one of them solves all the, the, the slips with, with equations the first day and moves on to subtraction. But the other one takes three days to finish them because it's a little bit slower. And the other one takes two weeks. No problem. As long as the child is engaged in some of the activities, he can take as long as he wants or she wants. We call that um, differentiation here when, when you mentioned kids being at different levels and working on different things and having to plan for you know, different curricula uh, for, and different activities and different levels of work for different kids, which is really hard, but it sounds like that's essential to Montessori teaching. In addition to the fact that you've got kids of different age levels in a classroom, uh, which I think creates even more differentiation potentially. Yes. Yes. It is very complex to run, really. The good thing is that what you what you have to invest in planning and running such a complex classroom, which usually is never a teacher alone, is usually a teacher with a helper or two, is that children respond so well to this that it ends up it, it ends up being not as hard as you you might think because you have you you go building creating a, a, a sort of an environment of concentration and personal, uh, individual drive in each child that you have a lot of motivated kids. And that's actually easier to run when it works <laughs> than having a bunch of kids that you need to become uh, all day long thinking things to motivate them, to engage them. I mean, you're the one when you're a traditional teacher, if you're a good one, if you're interesting, funny, creative and everything, you're running the show. You're the, the clown of the circus, right? <laughs> but in this case, no. If you're doing your job well, you do some presentations and then you take a step back and you see them work by themselves. And that's just so wonderful. When you, this is the most wonderful and magical moment of a Montessori classroom. I've lived it. I live it every day. And it's uh, what we strive for <laughs> is that when you take a step back and you see all, a bunch of children all working intensely and very interested in things that, that you wouldn't believe. And you see one doing a number of equations of math and don't want it to stop. You see another one matching names of birds with pictures of birds. You see another one uh, practicing calligraphy, uh, handwriting, uh, uh, another one writing a story. And, and, and But each of them following their own plan uh, prepared by the teacher. But since it's right their fit, just going along with it. And if you want to keep it rolling, you just start adding little challenges or extensions to each of them, and they can go deeper and deeper into their knowledge by their own account. So the, the quality of an environment that you generate is, is just fantastic. So uh, the idea is that yeah. they should be intrinsically motivated to do what they want to do by themselves without someone having to come in and structure an activity or be the entertainment or be the excitement. I thought that was really interesting when you mentioned that, because you know even at the university level, I feel like I am an entertainer. Um, I have to bring the energy. I have to bring the passion. Yes. I have to bring the interest. Like what I do before my lectures to, you know, I have a group of 60 students that I teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so before that, I walk the stairs. So like I walk up seven flights of stairs um, and down like for about <laughs> 20 to 30 minutes to get my energy up because I know I have to mm. go in there and and bring the entertainment, you know, be the clown and get everyone excited. Um, or else, yes. you, you know, everyone's just going to be quiet and and uninterested in, in talking um, or bringing their own sort of passion to the table. I've got to provide that, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. That's, that's our model. If you're a good teacher, you do what you do. If you're a bad teacher, you just talk and they get bored. Yeah. But now it's, we don't 
think of education as a place, and, and this is what she always said, she wanted it to be as a big lab of independent scientists, each pursuing their own interest. And everyone now and then, and this is something also part of the Montessori method is, they share, hey, look, this is what I found. So presentations that come around, they are genuine. Say, hey, we've been, we chose to study this bird and no one else has, because but I like parrots. So I chose parrots. I'm going to tell them about parrots. And so everybody stops and a child makes a presentation and then they continue. And this uh, spirit of a lab working is very opposite to the factory. And uh, that, that was the traditional method. All kids just doing the same thing at the same time. I would say that our modern method, what you're saying, and also what I what I did, and, and sometimes I do too, is uh, like the TV show. We are the TV host, right? We are the the, the, the host of a, of a radio show, of a, of a podcast, and we have to entertain and, and, and produce uh, excitement. Uh, one other thing that I, or the principles that I didn't tell you now I'm remembering is self-correction children get as little as possible outside correction. So if uh, the material is uh, many, in most cases, self-corrects the child, at the end, the, the child realizes he's not doing it well, or he always has by himself the results to check. So if he's doing additions, he has the results to his right. No one's putting a grade or anything. If he, if he does it wrong, he sees it, checks it out, does it again until he figures it out. The teacher is just watching. So there's no cheating, there are no tests, uh, there's no competition, there's no, there are no grades. Uh, there is only an individualized report of the teacher saying, okay, this kid is doing this, this and that, still struggling with this, this and that, already <laughs> ready for this and that. It's, it's an individual evaluation, but not graded. And this is something very difficult to accept for the system that usually asks for grades, for statistics, and so on. But it has nothing to do with the way you treat someone when you really want a process to evolve, right? If you, you go to a doctor, you don't want him to, to tell you, yeah, you have an eight in your <laughs> in your physical state. You want, you want him to tell you, okay, you need to work on this, you have this problem, you need to take this medicine. A number wouldn't tell you anything, right? <laughs> Oh no, next patient. Yes, you're a six. Oh no, you failed. No. What's wrong with me and what's right with me and what should I do? So yeah, this is a very important thing. Yeah. So I, I think that um, here we are, at least, you know, in our school district and a lot of others are moving to to these skill-based report cards, you know, that mm -hmm. are uh, more based on what, what you're mentioning. But it also kind of sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's this self-evaluation component where how did I do? Can Am I aware of how well I'm doing? What skills I have? What skills I don't have? What I'm good at? What I'm not good at? Yes, because the child is the one who determines I'm ready for the next challenge. So he knows he's going to have to do something, of, some of math, let's say, in, in four hours a week. You know, he, he, he may say, okay, I'm going to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to do math. Now, what he does there, he can keep on practicing addition as long as he wants, and or he can move on. And you would say, oh, probably a child would resist and would uh, uh, choose to keep doing the same thing over and over just because it's easy. No, that's not the case. When a child gets bored, he wants the next challenge if it's presented like that. With the, that, That's the point of freedom. So, of course, if you give a child to choose between doing some math or playing with the PlayStation, <laughs> he's... That's a choice you cannot give them. But if you tell them, okay, you can keep practicing this until you feel comfortable and then move on, then you will find that the child usually knows best when to move on and when to stop and when to, to keep repeating, for example. It sounds like um, if this is done right, uh, in theory, the child should have more idea of what they like to do, what they feel good at, what they want to pursue, such that like choosing your vocation might not be as difficult or confusing to them. Whereas I feel at the moment with a lot of my students and a lot of the students that I talk to to recruit um, uh, students to our school psychology graduate program is, mm -hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say this, but it's quite easy to get them to make this decision because they don't know what they want to do. They know they like psychology, but 
they uh, haven't really pursued enough on an individual level to know what they really are good at, what they are really are interested in. And so when I come along uh, and say, hey, there's this idea and I'm really excited about it, you should be too. I find it to be very persuasive, maybe more persuasive <laughs> than it ought to be. Right. Because yes. I mean, and I, and I, and I see myself as being the same way because when a teacher said that to me, I was like, Oh, I really don't have an idea of what I want to do. And that, that sounds good. I'll do that. You know, and it shouldn't be that way. Right. We should be more, we should have more conviction about the direction we want our careers and interests to go. Yes. Yes. This, this sort of self-respect that comes out of, not being broken by the system is what we are looking for. This is the, these are the only type of people that will resist the propaganda of a government to go to war. It's, it's the same principle. So yes, this autonomy. But let me tell you that another thing is that children may know that they can go faster in one area than in another one. But in general, they don't define an area as something they like the best. This is one of the things I, I like the most about the Montessori method and working with children, that children like knowledge indistinctively. Of course, some things that they need to do at a more basic level than others because there are different types of intelligence, but they still enjoy it. So the definition that and the relationship with knowledge and learning as, that evolves and that leaves children at the, at the age of 12, 13 for high school ready is not, yeah, I don't like math and I do like history because I'm good at history and I'm bad at math. No, I like history. I like math. This is my level of achievement in math. This is my level in history. Maybe I will choose to, to be an engineer because, of course, maybe, but not necessarily. Many of us like things that we're not that good at. I love playing tennis. I'm not very good at it. I still like to do it. Why should we put those things together? The system pushes us to make that, that connection, but it's not natural. We can like things we don't... How many of us love to sing and cannot <laughs> really tune, right? But uh, this is the thing that, that, of course, the system wants people to just do and be interested in what they do best. But that's not being human. A human being can do many things for pleasure. And knowledge should be treated like that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't even consider that. Um, so talk to me um, a little bit about the Montessori philosophy on discipline. Um, how do you deal and how is that different from maybe a, a regular public school classroom where maybe they focus on like a token economy system or something that has to do with behaviorism? Hmm. Well, this is for me one of the, the challenges of the method in this time because the theory that Montessori put forward was when a child is treated this way, then he will find himself in a state of mind called normalization. That's how she called it. This, what's normal is when a child is engaged on, on an activity that he finds interesting, useful, and challenging right? This is a state much better than when the child is just lost in fantasy. We don't want that. We want the child to be engaged in trying to figure out how to walk or how to use a new tool or how to do a math problem or how, how the universe works, right? Is what the, the type of amazement and interesting you, you find when you take a kid to see a dinosaur is in a museum, a real fossil. You see child are interesting. And it's not the same as watching Jurassic Park. It's a different thing. Now, the, the, the first one I'm mentioning, this is for her the highest state a child can be in. So she says, if a child is in that state, he will not be disruptive. He will not be interested in misbehaving. He will not be interested in breaking things. You don't have to do anything. You can forget about him. He's independent. And it's true. And that happens for a number of students and it's very good to see. So usually on a Montessori classroom, you won't have many problems of conduct. So that's, that's but, we would call that yeah. like the, the flow state here. You know, when you're in that flow, flow work state. state, right? You are yeah. completely engaged and you're, you're not interested. You're not bored. You're not frustrated about what you can't do. You're just really yeah. engaged. But she said, because of our way of bringing up children, that's what she said in the moment, children are not naturally drawn to that state. It takes time. Some children immediately, when presented with this environment of limited choice, of um, 
uh, all devices and little um, uh, objects designed for specific purposes of learning and the individualized lessons and in the the absence of competition some children when they're presented with that on day one they just you know bloom they change the chip and they just thrive and i've seen that it's true but she says other children may take longer they may take up to three years because it's very hard to handle that that amount of freedom it's very hard to develop that level of maturity to, to, to relate with, to knowledge in that way. For example, this way of working brings about a lot of, of dealing with frustration because you're alone with many of these challenges. Even when they have been tailored to your level, still learning involves some frustration. If not, there's no learning. <laughs> and some children are not have not tasted the, the, the honey of achieving something for your own and growing. Once a child tastes that, then he can deal with the frustration. But until he, he like sort of falls in love again with learning because he has fallen, he has lost it usually at an early age, lost it after he started walking and talking, maybe he lost it, right? But if a child, uh, so, so she said, it may take up to three years. That's the number she says. Now, my experience is that nowadays, this is maybe proving a little bit even harder to do. That is, children, uh, for some reason, uh, do not react to the freedom of a Montessori classroom in the same way as she would describe 150 years ago or 110 years ago. It's different. Like what you see is that in her age, children were given no opportunities, no freedom at home, anywhere. So they would enter a Montessori classroom and they would just, you know, flourish, be thankful, kiss her feet for paying attention. But what I see nowadays, that many children go into a classroom and they are not impressed by anything. They don't like anything. They don't, they, they can't be engaged. Children are harder to engage on things of knowledge. My theory is that the industry of entertainment we have provided has turned learning as an activity that brings a certain amount of pleasure harder or it has, it's harder to compete now for a Montessori environment with a virtual reality game uh, with guns and explosions and fantasy and uh, Netflix and all the million billion dollar industry of entertainment design for children. So we are making it very hard for them to embrace a meaningful activity. You're I guess being, it would be the same as running. Okay. You're, you're, being, you're being asked to, to uh, undo or cure an addiction in a lot of cases. Whereas I don't yes. think that, Maria Montessori's generation of teachers had the same challenge. Definitely, definitely. And the child at home is a king now. Many, many homes, at least here in South America, Latin homes are terrible with this. Same. If, if mothers were always, yes, okay, well. So when many times a child comes here and the freedom we give him is not enough. So we have children that do not, like, for example, that 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 don't want to 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 come back from the break. So of course we take a break at, at some point. We go outside and play. And when it's over, we say, "Okay, the break is over." And some children feel they can negotiate that. Oh no! Why don't we stay a little bit longer? Let's stay a bit longer. And they may even throw a tantrum. And they may be eight years old. So these are very distorted things that were not prevented, proven by the method, and were not thought by Maria Montessori. These are the challenges we have nowadays. Now, how I deal with it is first of all, I need to have the backup of the parent. But really what we do is when we hear you have, an, since a number of children still respond very well to the, to the method, when a child misbehaves or cannot handle this level of freedom because she, he goes, for example, a, guy, a, a, a child gets bored and starts bothering other child that is working in full concentration. So he's disrupting other people's concern. We just take him out on some part of the room sit him down and watch him, ask him to watch the others 
work. So really the whole punishment of a Montessori classroom is not to be able to participate in meaningful learning activities and getting bored. Basically, that's the negative connotation. So he gets bored. In many cases, that's enough, but not all. In some cases, then the child in my school, he comes to my room when I'm with older children, for example, we change children. They sit and see other children work. And sometimes that gets, but even in some cases, that's not, not enough. And well, that's when we, our hands are tied. So uh, we, we need to refer to the parents. We, we don't have the solution for every type of kid. There are a certain uh, number, I'm not, I cannot say number, maybe 10% of the population of kids that with this environment where we don't, are, we are not pushing for a certain behavior all the time, like now we're going to do this, then we're going to do that, after we're going to do that, they just can't handle it. And I've seen I've seen children struggling to develop this the kind of self uh, um, regulation regulation exactly needed to be part of a Montessori environment. Even though everything is so nice and we put a lot of attention in not to create any emotional disturbance and so on, even then I'm surprised that uh, some children struggle with it. And of course, it's what these children usually come with a diagnosis of HGHD or some sort of the spectrum uh, of uh, autism, even when sometimes you see them and you don't recognize much of the autism. So you wonder if that regulation, you know, some, some children are obviously part of the spectrum, but some others are like, have they been diagnosed because they had something to begin with or just because they're having troubles of school and they, and they have troubles of school because they are used to being the king of the house and then they just can't adapt to being with other children. Yeah. 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 That's, that's so this is, Yeah. Oh, so, so you don't uh-huh. do behaviorism, you don't do like the token economy to, uh, systems um, like, like if the kids are on the playground, for instance, I mean, do you, is the Montessori philosophy believe that kids will work out a lot of their issues themselves um, and that's part of socialization and that, that teachers or parents shouldn't come in and, and interfere, that the kids should learn on their own how to uh, work through problems? Well, yes and no. That's our ideal. Our first response is go deal with it. But of course, we are watching all the time. I mean, we, we don't, you don't, you can't leave room for bullying or anything like that. But also we have a whole, this is a very interesting thing. We have a whole curriculum right? With lessons planned for develop what's called peace education, mm. in which we, de- we we dedicate time to explore what are emotions, what are problems, what are uh, ways of problem solving. We do role playing, we do what's peace, we do reflection, talking. And in that aspect, we take every conflict, especially conflicts on breaks, on, on the playground, to talk about what is it like to be uh, a peacekeeper. This is something we tell them. We tell them this school is to to build peacekeepers. That's our objective. We want to be guardians of peace. And all children love that. When you tell them about war, no child, in my experience, has ever said, yeah, I, I think war is a good thing. They may be excited about the bombs and the tanks and the planes and everything that happens. And I usually make a point of saying, yes, the technology involved is really fascinating. But the suffering of the people, the what it means. So we tell them we are here to be peacekeepers and it's not easy. And war happens in our lives, in our school every day. So that's a speech that we consistently send them. There are no, 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 we don't expect them to be great athletes or great scientists or great, uh, I mean, we want, if they they will be, if they have to be, if they want to be. But we, 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 we do tell them is this school is for that. That's our and so every conflict is talked about and used to, as an example, as an opportunity to do that. So we, we let them, but when we see that things are not solved, we intervene. It sounds like Maria Montessori uh, really pushed that component of peace and war avoidance that, that, that was central and foundational. And, you know, I wonder yes. if, if that could be transitioned into something more of just like um, a harmony message and a socialization message um, to, to get to basically the same point with it sounding so maybe contrived and talking about war, especially and, and peace necessarily, you know, like modernize yes. the terms. 
Yes. And also we, the, uh, the other way we modernize it and kids really related it is with the environment. Yeah. We, we take care of them, what taking care of the environment means. And that's really been uh, woven into the, the peace education and how we take care, how we take care of the class, our class, our school. That's why we clean the school every day. This is something that uh, uh, that I, I I really love about Montessori to have children clean the school every day, including the bathrooms, right? And uh, this is something I've read about the Japanese doing it, and I always thought it was you know it, it really changes the way a child relates to the space he is in. I don't know if in 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 the U.S. Uh, this is done in in schools or primary schools or high schools uh, or not. Is it definitely not? No, no. Yeah, the, the cleaning is that is done by a separate personnel that comes after the school day and does. And, and of course, we do have that too because the cleaning that children do is sometimes not sufficient. But they do it, and you should see how happy and interested kids are of cleaning a toilet. A toilet, really. It's and I've had mothers come and come and tell me. You know, my, uh, we had a, a kid that started, he was 11 years old last year. He came for the last year of, of primary school. And he said, and uh, he, he was presented with the option of cleaning the bathroom. He hadn't done it ever in his life. He went home, started cleaning the bathroom. He found joy in that. And what he found really was self-worth. It's something you do for your own sake and you feel great about it. Everybody should try this. <laughs> if you have a, a problem with the depression, clean your bathroom extensively and you see how you feel after it. And Maria Montessori saw this because she worked with people in very poor neighborhoods. And she said, I cannot give them much, but if I teach them to be very tidy and clean and responsible about their own well-being, they will be in a better physical and mental condition to get out of poverty. And so that's why she translated it to kids. Yeah. No, and, I, think there, uh, well, I think there. I think there's a lot there. There's so much there. And I am like fascinated about this subject and yeah, all those different ways in which, you know, it can be applied to um, how we parent at, at home, not just in the Montessori environment. But um, mm. look, I literally have to go to a meeting at noon and it is 11.58 and 30 seconds. And I don't know yes. if we even have time for a dad joke to cut this off. No, 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 no dad joke. Let's pause it here and let's continue next week. And Absolutely. we'll find some Montessori gifts for Christmas so parents can think about it and, and include uh, some Montessori training in their Christmas uh, parties. Yeah, I, I want to uh, continue this discussion because I think there's a lot uh, that, that applies not just to parents who are interested in sending their kids to a Montessori school, but also to how a lot of this can relate to how we parent and the things that we do um, at home. So I want to pick up the conversation with talking about discipline in a Montessori environment uh, and then go from there to clarify a couple of things that you had mentioned. Uh, but thanks so much for uh, chatting with me about this. And we will continue. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, next week. Thanks, everyone. Great, yes. to, uh, great to be back at this. All right, see ya. See you, everybody. All right, bye-bye.